Good evening. Welcome. The spirit of this lecture, most especially of part two, is one of spreading seeds on rich soil. The hope is that in the sprouting period, oh, uh, I mean um, the question period, uh, there will spring up much fruit, many flowers and leaves and shoots of all sorts. Part one has three sections. Section one explains the visual thinking of Leonardo da Vinci and the living movement of the Chinese, that Chinese ink painters aimed to infuse into their paintings. Section two could be called Theophrastus's Logos pours forth much. Section three, which will be delivered tomorrow, is about how Goethe's intuitive looking discloses the formation and transformation of the leaf. Part two walks along the path connecting the approaches of part one to the blossoming of things. <clears throat> Section one, visual thinking and living movement. Before they actually go into the courtyard to look at and sketch magnolia trees, the students read about a way of looking which they can immediately put into practice. The botanist and philosopher Agnes Arbor introduces them to an approach known as pure morphology. In it, uh, rather than aiming to analyze the shape or appearance of a plant in terms of function, she looks at form contemplatively, not only in itself, but in its nexus of relations. Looking contemplatively requires engaging in a process of mental visualization or visual thinking, making use of both the bodily eye and the mind's eye, as she puts it. The morphologist must always begin her flights of thought by taking off from and must always end them by returning to the solid ground of visual appearances, thereby chastening the mind through the discipline of the eye. For there are many subtleties seizable by the eye that are routinely eliminated in arriving at the mental concept. <clears throat> Arbor points out that this solid ground is not always easily accessible to the eye of the morphologist, for one's perception depends upon preparedness of mind. She herself had been acquainted with the flowering plant Queen Anne's Lace She had been looking uh, acquainted at that, with that plant for half a century. Then one day she finally noticed 
that the pattern of its growth is such that the mean axis almost invariably terminates in a reduced inflorescence. Henceforth, she says, any plant that came under observation was found to show this salient feature so strikingly as to leave her bewildered at having been totally blind to it year after year. The morphologist makes use of two media, words and drawings. With respect to the first medium, her aim is to describe precisely. That is, she describes what the plant looks like in a way that allows us to form a mental image of it. We can put the plant object into various mental categories we have of known things and of familiar appearances. The better the fit in this placement, the better described the object becomes. As a result, we're able to read the description as a musical score and play in our minds the melody of precisely this plant. The morphologist's second medium is visual expression. The pen and the pencil are the two principal means she can use for the depiction of beings. And of the two, she says, the pencil is better able to depict. Hence, artistic power and morphological insight are, in a certain way, correlated. For there is a lot in all of a plant's detailed visible characteristics, which cannot be expressed in words, but can be portrayed by the artist. Our visual thinking can then use these visible traits to interpret the appearance. The preeminent botanist of the 19th century, Julius von Sachs, used to tell the students in his lab that what one has not drawn, one has not seen. Finally, according to Arbor, uh, one of the factors which cramps the biologist's visual thinking is her tendency to see a thing from a human standpoint instead of as it is in and for itself. Many of the plant's subtleties are on offer to the eye and mind if it becomes one with what it sees, thus breaking down the rigid subject-object antithesis." End quote. Arbor is here referring to a mental state in which she is not conscious of herself as standing over against the plant, as it were. This state of being one with is prior to that of duality. It is one of self-identification with the living thing, she says. 
Arbor here refers to the work of Chinese and Japanese artists who often identify themselves with a bird or a flower and thus reveal its individual character with an intuitive insight. A lab student said that when we see what we see in our own way, we have a better sense of its individual tendency. Then it's as if we were touching it in our drawing. The student said, quote, it's already inside me in the way a character in a short story I'm writing is inside me. We might say that there is an individuality coming from two sources, from the individual thing and the individual looker. When these artists expressed that distinctiveness on paper, the drawing was said to exhibit, quote, living movement. And that is the transfusion, <clears throat> I quote, the transfusion into the work of the felt nature of the thing to be painted or drawn by the artist. At the moment of painting, the artist must feel the very nature of the subject which he transfers into the work so that it can affect all who see it with the same sensations he experienced when painting it. So when painting a tree, Feel the strength of a tree shooting through the branches. Or when painting a flower, the grace with which a flower expands or bows its blossom. End quote. In this quotation, the repeated mention of feeling refers to a sensing that is both preconceptual and prior to I versus object perception. Indeed, it has been said that the primary quality of all perception is our feeling of dynamic properties, such as the aggressive outward pointing of the triangle, the dissonant clash of the hues, the onrush of the movement. In applying the phrase living movement to drawings, we may seem to be speaking metaphorically. If so, then the phrase directed tension may better capture what the viewer actually experiences, namely qualities like compactness, striving, twisting, expanding, yielding in all sensory modality. The students looking can become sensitive to such dynamic effects visually received, but perhaps not consciously registered in the moment. A lab student said that she could sense the energy of the leaves of a tree as if they were falling like drops from a fountain. In other words, <clears throat> The artist felt those effects prior to consciously experiencing objects. As people become habituated to look for what is familiar, 
they become less spontaneously responsive to directed tensions. A good way to become so sensitized is a true living movement is to practice gesture drawing in the way outlined by Kimon Nicolaides in The Natural Way to Draw. He tells us that we are to seek the actual impulse of the gesture in whatever we are drawing. We are not to confuse this impulse with emotion. For instance, when we call a certain tree a weeping willow, we do not mean that it is sad because it looks like a sad person. Rather, we are first responsive to the shape, direction, and flexibility of the branches, which convey passive hanging. Subsequently, we may notice a similarity with a similar state of mind and body we call uh, sadness. Here's uh, a weeping willow. And for contrast, a white pine. <clears throat> so when the students are drawing the magnolias in the courtyard, they bear in mind and eye Nicolaides' advice that, quote, a tree does not grow from the top down, but from the bottom up. Start then at the bottom, and in a loose, easy, tentative manner, allow your pencil to move upward as you can feel that the tree has moved up. Upward and out along the branches, let your pencil follow the sense of movement through to the leaves. <clears throat> do they spread like bursts of flame from a skyrocket? Or do they fall down, dropping like water? As the tree reaches upward, it moves out from its core into a three-dimensional form." End quote. We are to draw rapidly and continuously and to let our pencils swing around the paper, impelled only by the felt sense of the living movement, without taking our pencil off the paper. He says, you should draw not what the thing looks like, not even what it is, but what it is doing. Feel how the figure lifts or droops, pushes forward here, pulls back there, pushes out here, drops down easily there. While gesture is only one of the many aspects of drawing that Nicolaides had his students practice, if that aspect has not been felt and incorporated into the final drawing, the latter will lack aliveness. Thus, in addition to drawing on paper and describing in words precisely how the magnolia appears to their perception, the students also express in their drawings the active impulse 
which they felt prior to their object perceptions. Here are uh, two examples um, of drawings by Nicolaides students of a model. You can see the energy, the impulses coursing through them. Section two, <clears throat> Theophrastus's Logos pours forth much. Having begun in the first class <clears throat> by attending to the looking, to our state of mind as looker and to our way of looking, we now with Theophrastus's inquiry concerning plants, turn more to the looked at. <clears throat> Instead of looking contemplatively with an open gaze and with sensitivity to living movement, we are invited to attend to certain features of plants, to their differences with respect to parts, to ways of responding to changes in their environment, to ways of coming into being, and to ways of life. Because we devote <clears throat> only five classes to plants, our reading centers on the first of those four, the parts of plants. The fact that in order actually to see evidence relevant to the other three, we need to be observing the plants over a longer period of time raises a question for the students about how well they could come to know a tree or a plant by looking closely and drawing over a short two-week period. One suggested that our task is to tell the story of the tree, a story that would be composed of sub-stories of its various parts, which were like characters in a novel. Yet in the lab, we have only a short time to become acquainted with it and with its characters. Another student suggested that you can't have a clear sense of how the tree trees unless you study the parts it uses to tree. A second said that looking very attentively at some one part might, in a way, convey a sense of the whole. A third proposed that the key insight might lie in attaining a certain level of intimacy with the tree in her sessions of looking and drawing. <clears throat> It may have been helpful that the first drawing exercise asked them to feel that in drawing a plant part, they were having a chance, intimate, personal chat with a neighbor they hadn't really known before. Afterwards, they'd have a real sense for what that neighbor is like. One student said that she could later reawaken that moment of deeper contact with the tree 
when she came to draw the hole. Theophrastus points out that several factors make it difficult to determine precisely what is to be called a part and what not. We notice that some portions of a plant, like flowers and leaves, last only to the end of the year. And in addition, uh, new sprouts and buds keep springing up. Thus, if these are included as parts, the number of parts would be indeterminate. But we must include them since it is, quote, when plants are sprouting or budding and blooming and bearing fruit, that they not only seem but also are more beautiful and more complete, end quote. They are complete in the sense that they are at their peak or end state. <clears throat> it is striking that plants are at their high point when they are in motion, becoming more themselves, growing twigs, leaves, blossoms, or fruit. For animals, as we shall see, differ fundamentally in that they are at their high point when they are keeping themselves, that is, their parts and the capabilities of those parts to perform particular actions. So keeping themselves at the very point at which they have already arrived. That is precisely when they are not still becoming themselves. <clears throat> this difference could serve as a warning to us in dealing with the difficulty of delimiting parts and in viewing plants in general, not unthinkingly to rely on animal analogs. For instance, while it is true that leaves are like certain animal parts, like horns, feathers, or hair, in being cast off, on the other hand, only plants and not animals are capable of sprouting or budding everywhere. So too, the fact that during growth, animals' limbs emerge only in determinate places, and they have limits of growth and stay at those limits, means that we must be careful in speaking of the limbs of trees. <clears throat> Theophrastus makes recommendations about what to focus on when we are looking at the external parts of plants. That is, when we are doing morphology and uh, inquiring about morphae as a whole, in spite of the fundamental difference just mentioned between plants and animals, he recommends that in addition to noting which parts belong to all plants and which are proper only to one or to several, and which parts are similar to which other parts. He tells us to take note of which plant parts have analogs among animals. The reasons for this last recommendation are first, animals are more complete than plants. 
in the sense that their activity is complete. It's not on the way to becoming complete. The sprouting of plants, on the other hand, quote, seems to be a certain activity, but an incomplete one, as Aristotle said. Second, that we are more familiar with animals, partly because being animals ourselves, we know them from the inside, as it were. So we can sometimes recognize a part of a plant more easily by seeing its similarity to a more complete or more familiar part of an animal. And we may even learn from looking for an animal analog and not finding one. For instance, a mouth and intestines belong to animals generally. But when we seek for an analog in the case of plants, we realize there is none to be found. Then we understand that compared with animals, the plant is, quote, so diverse and elaborate that it is hard to speak about as a whole. Theophrastus next tells us what to look for with respect to differences among the parts of plants. We look to them because from them, in the case of each plant, the morphe as a whole becomes altogether manifest, end quote. In general, there are three or four such differences to look for. Plants may have some parts such as leaves, but not others like fruit, their parts may not be similar in color, in figure, in proximity, in texture, and so on, or may be unequal in size. And finally, uh, they may be arranged in a different order as when the fruit is below rather than above the leaves. <clears throat> Theophrastus then says, that after enumerating the differences among the parts, we are to focus on each part by itself. We should begin by attending to those parts that are greatest and common to most plants, even though all plants may not, uh, may not have all of them. The four parts to study first are roots, uh, stems, or in the case of trees, trunks, branches, and twigs, that is, shoots coming from the branches. In Theophrastus's view, we do well to begin our lab by observing the magnolia trees in the courtyard. For these four categories of parts that we ought to observe happen to belong most of all to trees and the division into parts is more proper to them than to any other plant, Theophrastus says. <clears throat> Moreover, the variety of differences with respect to parts that we notice among trees will indicate clearly the differences of the parts of each of the other plants as well. 
we'll be able to discern differences in color and figure and proximity or in order of arrangement most easily in trees. So he says, it is right to make reference of the other plants to trees. In addition to focusing on parts, on conveying the shape of the whole and on dividing by differences, Theophrastus makes the following observation, quote, the plant is a thing pouring forth much. According to a footnote in our manual, the progressive partic participle polycun emphasizes that a plant's a sprouting or blooming is never finished, unlike the corresponding activity of animals. It seems that the much of a plant that is poured forth is or becomes its various parts. Perhaps Theophrastus's idea is that if our looking were not oriented by the many helpful distinctions he makes, we'd look at a plant and have only a global sense of the energy of water being shot up by a fountain and then falling down. With his guidance though, and his foregrounding of sprouting or budding, blooming, and bearing fruit, what we see might be likened to, to a fountain having different sized and shaped openings, putting forth water to different heights at different pressures. Perhaps the water from various openings comes forth in different colors. From some, the water may gradually shoot higher and higher. From others, it may suddenly turn off. We'd miss much of this variety, perhaps, if we had not read Theophrastus. <clears throat> As we now attempt to follow Theophrastus in our looking, how does our observation of the magnolias differ from what it was like on the first day. Then, it seemed, we were invited first to begin by being open to whatever emerged spontaneously from our sensory experiencing. Second, we were also initiated into a state of mind prior to words in which we aimed to feel and to express the doing of the plant. We avoided slipping into the attitude of being a mere observer over against object. We can experience with Theophrastus both the benefits and possible drawbacks of Logos. On the one hand, looking at our tree with Theophrastus's notions in mind enables us to see, as it were, a joint between two limbs that we had previously thought was one. So that now we feel, that's it, I've gotten it right. Or it can open our eyes to a part that has been right in front of us all the time. In ways like these, our, trees, our tree comes to make more sense to us. <clears throat> 
Moreover, additional layers of meaning are added when we see the likeness of a tree part to a more familiar and determinate animal part. Also are attending to similarities and differences between parts helps enrich even more our sense of the tree. On the other hand though, Theophrastus's logos could close us off either from seeing additional new things in plants or from different ways of experiencing them. We might lock onto the distinctions we've learned from Theophrastus in a way that our tracking of them prevents us from noticing different targets that appear on our radar screen. There is also a risk of closing ourselves off from the impulses or living movement which we had sensed on the first day. <clears throat> We'd be like uh, someone who only notices and responds to the meaning of what a friend says and ignores the speaker's tone of voice, physiognomy, and gestural accompaniment. The result would be that our drawings and descriptions of parts and of their interrelationships would seem dried up, withered, lacking aliveness. Both approaches, the impulse approach and the logos approach, go beyond ordinary experiencing and awaken or enliven us to what is new. The aliveness of the first lies in our sensing the impulse of the tree's gesture, in our feeling the strength of a tree shooting through the branches. What is enlivening about the second is illustrated when the vague becomes sharp, as in, ah, so that's it. Or when isolated fragments suddenly fit together into a whole. It's like what occurs when I've been observing a face in the crowd and then suddenly notice its similarity to another. A new aspect of the face lights up for me in an instant. I am unexpectedly struck by the reduced inflorescence on the Queen Anne's lace. Experiencing either of these two kinds of aliveness feels, feels like a bud's bursting into flower. <clears throat> we die to either approach when we become content to drift smoothly carried along by familiar concepts, interrupted neither by a sudden sense of striving or twisting, nor by an unexpected connection between two familiar things. In the same way, forming an opinion is enlivening. Holding on to an opinion is deadening. Moreover, both approaches are characterized by K 
temporal priority to the everyday, but in different senses. The priority exemplified by the impulse approach is that of the split second when a tree is just coming into focus, but I have not yet registered it as a tree. We are able to train ourselves to stay in touch with that preconceptual awareness beyond that first fraction of a second. In the Logos approach, the priority is a very long duration. It has taken centuries for the language to acquire the relevant individual meanings and the web of family relationships among them. The experience of drawing them up now has the feel of recollecting a name you already knew before, but had long ago forgotten. Ideally, we could experience the benefits of both approaches while avoiding the downside of each. As a student suggested, we can aim to alternate back and forth between them. Now we look through the Theophrastian Logos. Now we sense the leaves spreading like bursts of flame or dripping like water. It might be possible though, to be somehow experiencing in both ways together at the same time, and yet not quite in either of them. The mustard seed garden manual of painting puts this um, rather strikingly. It says, we, uh, it says that is of the Chinese uh, painter, uh, <clears throat> painters, we are inspired by the madness of a wild dog, and simultaneously, our mind is opened wide to the oneness of the heaven. Finally, before leaving Theophrastus, uh, let us revisit a word, thesis, that occurs right at the beginning of his treatise, in which we have been translating as putting forth, that is, shoots. The transitive verb from which it is derived, fuyaw, means a bring or put forth as leaves or shoots, engender or generate as offspring. And in reference to parts of oneself, it means grow as a beard. <clears throat> Second meaning in the present, seemingly intransitive, it means uh, put forth shoots. And the middle voice means grow, wax, spring up or forth, especially used of the vegetable world. According to Theophrastus, our task includes grasping the plant's way of putting forth buds, shoots, sprouts, twigs, stems, roots, branches, leaves, flowers, fruits. 
Aristotle's account of physis in the physics will help us to refine our thinking about it. Animals, <clears throat> as well as plants, have physis, both primordially have within themselves the originator of and ruler over their moving and their remaining at rest. This inner originator ruler may be understood, Aristotle says, as a switchover impulse. Hormain metabolis, an impulse that originates a as it were, a shifting of gears from motion to standstill or vice versa. It's important to note that as evidenced by the verb metabala, from which metabole, switchover, is derived, <clears throat> the switchover at issue here has two features which distinguish it from a process or motion. First, it is a shift between alternative positions, as in turning the earth upside down or turning about to face the rear. And second, it is quick and sudden, as if it took no time at all and as if it were not gradually led up to by what preceded it. So physis here is the source not of a process or motion, but of an instantaneous shift or changeover, as in flipping a light switch on or off. This impulse may be what Nicolaides proposed that the draftsperson aimed to sense and to express through the body-mind's intuitive sensing. Seek the actual impulse of the gesture, whether of the model's pose or of the magnolia. If we looked more closely, it might even be possible to detect a sequence of switchovers in what had appeared to be a smooth growth process. In that case, growing would turn out to be a series of tiny growth spurts with pauses in between. In summary, the plant's physis impels it to change over instantly from inactivity at a particular place and time to putting forth leaves, shoots, flowers, or fruit, or conversely from spout, sprouting, blossoming, fruiting, to inactivity there and then. The plant's individual acts of putting forth its spewing then are manifestations of the inner originator ruler. It is the latter that is the plant's physis. Let us now at the end skip a few weeks ahead in the lab to the activities of unicellular animals in order to see how the switchover impulse might show up in them too. We study animals like amoebae with some help from the theoretical biologist 
Jakob von Uxkühl. We notice that when faced with tasks like escaping a predator, feeding on a prey, or digesting what it has consumed, the amoebae's protoplasm has the power in each situation to form the structure the animal needs in order to perform the given task and afterwards to unform that structure again. For instance, in eating and digesting, a compartment enclosed by a membrane known as a vacuole first becomes the mouth, then the stomach, then the intestine, and finally the anus. We see the organs appear one after the other in a fixed temporal sequence. And each organ, when its performance is finished, disappears again. Here, the immediate effect of the impulse of the switchover is to form the first organ the amoeba needs in order to exercise that organ's function. The next switchover is to exercise that function. Then it forms the second organ needed, and so on. In a sequence of bursts of formation and unformation, or of action and cessation of action, each forming or using of an organ is analogous to an act of sprouting by the magnolia. We might say of either the plant or the amoeba that what it has at the ready is a complex power with respect to its actions. This power enables it to display in the appropriate ways as required from moment to moment the relevant features of the complex activity which comprises its way of being what it is. There are two obvious differences between the part-making putting forth of plants and the organ-forming putting forth of amoebae. A plant switch over to budding, blooming, or fruiting is an initiation of a pro production what it is producing is a part of itself which will endure for at least long enough to become an object of study for Theophrastus. As producing itself, a plant's switchovers are engaged in its continual process of coming to be. In the case of the amoeba, the sequence of its sproutings that is, its switchovers to shaping, to using, to unshaping organs, right where it began. That is nothing like twig or flower or additional length persists. It comes to have no new part or augmented part. It is now what it has been. It was already in a complete state, and its turnings on and off have served to maintain itself in that same state of completeness. 
they are changeovers to or from actions which hold or keep it in its pre-existing state of completeness. We're going to continue the exploration of one view of things that the guiding thread of the impulse to sprout, which is encountered in the first few meetings of the freshman laboratory, could suggest to first year students at St. John's. Section three, Goethe's intuitive looking and the transformation of the leaf. Our next author, Goethe, seeks to combine in a fresh way the impulse and logos approaches that we discerned in the first three lab readings and practica yesterday. As suggested by the title of his major work on plants, the metamorphosis of plants, he reconceptualizes Arbor's pure morphology in two steps. First, as Goethe explains in introducing his aim, morphology is literally an account of a structured shape or form, morphe, gestalt, which assumes that a connected thing is fixed in its character. It abstracts from what is mobile. But when he, he gazes intuitively at the shapes of plants and their parts, he sees that nothing in them is at rest. Everything is fluctuating in continual motion. What he actually experiences as the referent of the expression morphe is something that is held steady only for the moment in his experience. So he replaces Morphe with formation, Bildung, which would be morphosis in Greek. The word formation can refer to both what has been brought forth and what is being brought forth. If he had stopped here, he would have written a work of morphosisology, <laughs> the morphosis of plants, illustrating the impulse approach. However, in Goethe's intuitive vision, what has been formed is immediately again being transformed that is metamorphosized. What does this mean? In gazing intuitively at a tree or another plant, Goethe sees that while it really does appear to us as an individual, it actually consists of nothing but particular single things. Furthermore, these single things are first similar to each other in appearance. Second, they are identical in idea. And third, 
they are alike to the whole plant or tree. Goethe's intuitive gazing might be compared to viewing a ballet from three different viewpoints. First, when I focus on several individual dancers, I notice that their movements, when not identical, are similar to each other. Second, I am able to intuit in each of them the source or idea, as he calls it, from which the whole ballet sprang up in the mind of the choreographer. Third, when I step back and take in the flow of the whole dance, I can see how the movements of an individual character are like the larger movement of the whole uh, troupe. In viewing the ballet of the plant in this way, Goethe is recognizing what he calls living formations as such, that is, as alive and as moving on to their next formation. He is also grasping their outward, visible, tangible dancers in interrelation, that is, as forming the ballet as a whole. And he is shedding light on these dancers as hints of the interior idea, whence the ballet originated and which it expresses. The name Goethe chose for that which represents what is the same in idea and tendency was leaf. Here is a way to experience right now what he might have had in mind. Look at the two figures you'll see in a few seconds for a short period of time with the question in mind, what are some possible relationships between them? Sorry. Huh. Uh, I'm uh, having trouble here. Hmm. Well, so maybe I'll just copy this and put it on something I can show. Sorry about this. Okay. Okay, there. Um, so the, the two on the left are a bigger version of the two on the right. 
that's what we're looking to see, imagine possible relationships between them. And then I'll remove this picture and put up another one. which I'll have to transfer in the same way, or I'll just do it this way. Okay. All right. Um, so, here we go. Uh, so here we see nine versions of the common buttercup ordered starting here at the bottom of the stem and going around to here at the top. So, looking at the two leaves from the first figure, we can intuit little kinship between them. But when we look in succession at the nine formations in the second figure, we see them as if held steady only for a moment in their temporal sequence. The two leaves from the first figure now make sense to us as successive moves in a dance of development. Goethe has in a way combined Theophrastus's pictures of pouring forth much and of differences and similarities of parts into uh, moving pictures, that is movies, projected in the imagination. That's why he says that if we wish to look at nature in a way that is alive and intuitive, we ourselves must remain as mobile and flexible as nature and follow the example she gives, end quote. In our film, we must be able to see all the formations and, and transformations of nature in the sequence in which she performs them. Goethe's emphasis on an underlying sameness throughout the sequence of appearances might lead to the formulation that in the sequence of the nine leaves, the same while remaining itself is generating likenesses or images of itself and of each other. Fusis, the source of putting forth, the source of fuyen, would then be a source of images. 
Goethe's view was later slightly revised. The shoot, that is the unity of the stem and leaf complex, came to be seen as the source of the plant's dance or as the idea in his terms. It came to seem obvious to botanists that each branch shoot echoes the character of the parent shoot. The students in lab too seem to see the centrality of the shoot. Two classes before they had even read Goethe, one student proposed that each part of the tree began by coming forth as a shoot and then differentiating itself and distinguishing itself as it grew. For another, the shoot was like the tree or plant coming forth to say, here I am, making its identity known. In the Metamorphosis, Goethe shows that the flowering plant continually moves through the following six-step cycle. First, expanding from the seed to the fullest development of the stem leaf, then contracting to the sepals of the calyx. Third, expanding to the petals of the corolla. Fourth, contracting to the style and stamen. Fifth, expanding to the fruit. And finally, returning to seed by a contraction. Thus, the motion is not exactly circular, but it's rather like a graph of waves moving around a circle, sort of expanding, contracting, expanding, contracting as they go around. Uh, we'll look at the second of the six transitions first, uh, and we'll see if we can get a picture up of, of the images. So when it occurs rapidly, the stem suddenly lengthened and refined shoots up from the node of the last fully developed stem leaf and collects several leaves around the axis at its end. Here are two examples that I hope we'll be able to see. Yes, okay. Here's one example. I'll say something about the two of them together. So here we have, uh, un uh, here are stem leaves, unaltered stem leaves. They moved together in a kind of calyx. And this is a rapid transition to flowering. Here's another one. 
So Goethe suggests that in these examples, or ones like these, since the stem leaves still fully retain their shape, we can rely on the mere appearance, for we see unaltered stem leaves moved closer together in a kind of calyx right under the flower. Goethe's intuitive looking discloses that the same organs which so far can be seen, have been able to be seen developed as stem leaves, now, often in a very altered shape, are collected around a common center. The other transition from stem leaves to flowering or to um, sepals uh, would occur slowly as the stem leaves come together gradually alter and then gently steal over as it were into the calyx as in the next image Um, this is a slow transition, it's actually to um, the calyx. So here and then this is what he calls a slower uh, transition. And we'll um, look at another example of this uh, slow transition. Uh, in this one, the edges of the clustered and modified stem leaves may grow together, making them, he says, even less recognizable. So in this one, the stem leaves are connected together in the calyx here as transformed in the calyx more, more intimately. Goethe's conclusion from such observations is that in forming the calyx, nature instead of producing several leaves and nodes successively and at a distance from one another as before, now joins them together around a central point. Following this contraction of leaves in the formation of a calyx, the next transition, so the third step, is produced by an expansion of the leaves, that is the sepals, in the formation of the petals of a corolla. However, the petals are so different in appearance from the sepals, he says, 
that we couldn't recognize that they originated from the sepals, were we not able to eavesdrop on nature in several abnormal cases. Here are three of the examples of eavesdropping which Goethe mentions. I'll just uh, say what is going on in each of the three and then we'll look at them. So the, in the first, image 14, the color of some of the sepals is not green as it usually is, but it anticipates the gold of the petals. In the next ones, image 16, even the stem leaves, that is before the sepals, even the stem leaves already show some of the purple of the petals. And finally, we can see in the third image that the stem leaves transition into petals in the nor abnormal case of a tulip where half of one petal is green like the sepals and still attached to the stem and the other half is colored like the other petals and raised up as part of the corolla. So here we see these, these are shaped, they're golden or darker golden, they're shaped the same way as the green sepals, but their color is shared with the petals. The next one, we see uh, purple on even the stem leaves way before they get up to uh, the petals. And the last one is the tulip where this one here, half of it is green and attached to the stem like the sepals. The other half is colored like the petals. So in the last one, it, it looks as though nature had skipped over the calyx in uh, rushing ahead to the corolla. Goethe repeatedly argues for and tries to make intuitive to us the inner identity of the different plant parts. Despite the greatest deviation of their outer form. This enables us to accompany in our imaginations the outer form of the plant through all its transformations, while at the same time keeping a mental gaze on the inner identity. We have just experienced something like this accompanying in our, when we were accompanying in our imaginations, 
the leaves around the wheel of the nine schematic figures of the buttercup leaf. He claims that in this way, we can learn to, quote, derive all the transformations of the outer form of the plant, end quote. In the derivation, we may be, it may be that we are identified with the originator, the physis of the shooting forth, so that we pulsate rhythmically with it in its switchovers from on to off and back. For Goethe, making intuitive the inner identity and deriving the appearances requires a training in a new way of looking and in a new way of using the power of imagination and understanding. He says, it gradually will become easy for us to look at the appearances next to each other in both a forward <clears throat> and a backward direction. For, for instance, uh, he will be able to say, he says, that a stamen is a contracted petal or with equal justification that a petal is a stamen in a state of expansion, or that a sepal is a contracted stem leaf, or that a stem leaf is a sepal expanded. So we can go backward and forward in either direction around the circle of the six steps. Uh, he has a drawing that sort of illustrates uh, one of these, which we can look at. I think, no, we can't, sorry. <clears throat> uh, so we're moving now to part two. There are two sections. The first section is Goethe and Chinese painting. So we're returning to something from the beginning. After the metamorphosis, we read some, or we may read some reflections by Goethe on his way of looking. Some observers of nature on the basis of isolated single experiences try to come up with an idea, a hypothesis or a theory. To them, he says that while experiences may appear isolated, in reality, they interconnect both with each other and with the whole. In order to allow the interconnection to appear, we must multiply and diversify the initial experience by arranging for a series of closely related experiences. Then we can survey and see them all as revealing what he calls a higher sort of experience, 
what we then see is in reality only a single experience viewed from many different viewpoints or composed of many facets. Instead of thinking of a box of slides, for example, as separate photos, he would see them as the frames of a film. And so as presenting a single temporally spread out entity. Goethe calls the object of this deeper view the pure phenomenon. When he looks at a sequence of experiences in this way, what seemed to be wavering in the isolated experiences becomes stable. What appeared merely accidental is eliminated, and what looked too complicated becomes untangled. Goethe uses the word, <coughs> sorry, Uh, no, I'm, excuse me. Goethe uses the word idea in two different ways. On the one hand, when a scientist thinks up and formulates an idea in advance and states it as an hypothesis to be confirmed later by experiment, that's one sense of idea. On the other hand, Goethe himself holds his mind and his senses, as he says, in a state of attunement and of attentiveness, as sharp as it is calm. He is then able to see the pure phenomenon displaying itself in a continuous sequence of appearances, end quote. He experiences it as a living idea. As he puts it in language reminiscent of Nicolaides' account of drawing a tree, <clears throat> he is experiencing nature herself as alive and active, striving from the whole to the part. Thus, uh, Goethe experienced the idea of the metamorphosis of plants blossoming in himself. Uh, one time he uh, described the metamorphosis of plants to his friend Schiller and made a schematic sketch of it. When Schiller responded, that is not an experience, that is an idea. Goethe was taken aback and somewhat annoyed and said, quote, then I may rejoice that I have ideas without knowing it and can even see them with my own eyes, end quote. This mental participating in nature's production is what he has been calling intuitive looking. In it, our power of thinking is active in an objective way, in his words. Goethe understands objective thinking to mean that when he looks at a plant in his mental film, 
what he is looking at then belongs to him and that he can produce it again in his mind. Such belonging uh, brings to mind what my students said in class about the tree being inside her in the way a character in a short story she's writing is inside her. Goethe can generate the appearances under thousands of circumstances, their uniformity and mutability being looked at with an intuitive gaze, their determinateness recognized and determined again by the human mind, end quote. This objective thinking is the ultimate ground for Goethe's ability to derive plant forms. It is a pregnant point from which much may be derived, as he puts it. Perhaps in looking at his mental film of the appearances of a plant, Goethe participates in its unique switchover impulse in such a way that he can generate those appearances and their modifications in his mind. The pregnant point of objective thinking is the point where the aliveness of the buds bursting into flower or of the lighting up of one face's similarity to another meets and is one with the aliveness of our sensing the flower's impulse on the impulse approach, or of our noticing the new aspect of the face on the logos approach. What has Goethe shown us about how we can look in a different way? First, he emphasizes that we need to be focused on two aspects of the plant, on its continual shifts over time and on the interconnectedness of its parts. Second, by arranging our experiences of the plant in the proper sequence, we can see the pure phenomenon revealing itself in and through them. And third, if we become objectively one with the pure phenomenon, our mind will derive countless varieties of the plant's appearances. In this way of looking, we hold ourselves back from imposing our preconceptions and from projecting our hypotheses. We are participating mentally in a way in the plant's putting forth of parts. We are experiencing physis as alive and active. Living movement is a translation, which was mentioned at the beginning of the first lecture, is a translation of the second half of the first canon of Chinese painting, <clears throat> which according to Si's the Tao of painting reads as follows, circulation of qi makes living movement. In a later version, it was changed slightly to 
rhythmic reverberation of chi makes living movement. This canon of painting may be interpreted more broadly as a standard of what constitutes a live drawing, or more generally, a live looking, seeing, and thinking. Of the two parts of the first canon, the key is the first, circulation of the chi. For it is responsible for the alive moving. <clears throat> Quote, this concept of the chi in action governs all the principles and every work of art down to each brush stroke. While the chi is what brings forth and permeates life and its movement, it is not to be identified with that life and movement. They emerge from it. In the same way, when the wind in stirring the leaves produces a rustle, the rustling is of the foliage. It's not the rustling of the wind. Thus living movement, we can say, is the rustling of the things, the stirring of the forms in the painting, and the motion of the painter's hand and arm, all of which are brought forth and permeated by the circulation or reverberation of the qi. Chinese painters aimed to, reg <coughs> sorry, to render the qi that resides in each form. The forms of a painting would be lifeless if they did not manifest something of that chi. The painters recognized that once, when one succeeds in conveying the chi of each form, the result is the expression of the chi pervading the whole. In our terms, to produce such a result, the painter must penetrate into the secret of the inner switchover impulse. In Goethe's formulation of such penetration, we transcend mere looking at and pass over into intuitive looking, participating in nature's productions. Intuitive looking allowed Goethe to see nature herself as alive and active in the same way chi has to be grasped, quote, through intuition, that is, by looking in a certain way so as to call forth the receptivity and responsiveness of one's heart-mind. For Goethe, the metamorphosis of plants was a succession of alternating expansions and contractions. In Chinese painting, what is important is in nature's perpetual motion is the constant interaction of the rising, floating, expanding and active qualities of the chi known as yang, 
and the sinking, settling, shrinking, and passive qualities known as yin. The painter sees the cycle of growth, bloom, and decay of a flower as illustrating the operation of the expanding and shrinking in turn, so that the resulting painting of a flower at a given stage of development depicts either a yang or a yin aspect of it. Goethe seems to have a more regular sense of alternation than the Chinese painters. Perhaps he'd prefer the second version of the first canon, which speaks of rhythmic reverberation. Here's a passage echoing Goethe's account of intuitive looking that describes the Chinese painter's participation in one of nature's formations. Quote, in observing the way a bud opens into full flower, eventually to shed its petals, and the conditions under which this process takes place, the painter is exploring an aspect of phusis. I've altered the translation slightly by putting phusis in. He is able to understand phusis when he is thoroughly familiar with every stage of the process can see it, namely the bud opening, then shedding petals, etc., at each stage of the process and as a whole, as analogous to other manifestations of the way of Fusis around him, including himself, and can through his heart and mind become aware of the same pattern of movement beyond his own limited horizon on the scale of the whole universe, end quote. In this description, one has only to replace painter with observer of nature in order to have a good account of Goethe's objective thinking. In the painter's way of observing too, we are accustoming ourselves to hold the appearances against each other in both a forward and backward direction. Moreover, just as the painter's seeing the way of Fusus includes seeing it in himself and in the whole universe, so Goethe himself was transformed by his observation of nature. And I quote, from a poem, I and my brothers and sisters think in every place we are in the interior of nature. To myself a thousand times I say, all things she gives gladly and lavishly. Nature has neither nor shell. She is everything at once. Examine chiefly only yourself, whether you are kernel or shell." End quote. When we draw the impulse or when we look intuitively, 
how are we experiencing in a way different from the usual one? When we participate in the formations of physis, as we draw, look, see, or think, how are we experiencing? Drawing or describing is an act aims to manifest outwardly what is appearing precisely in the way it is appearing to us. Taking our cue from Arbor, Nicolaides, from Goethe, the Chinese painters, we might compare ourselves to a musical instrument on which the plant is playing its melody. When we are drawing, painting, or describing it, if we are in a state of calm attention and, re and flexible responsiveness to the plants playing, then we are a well-tuned instrument. Our drawing or our precise description is then a melody that the plant is playing. So I see that um, we are about 45 minutes in, and I think section two, I will just skip to the very end, which is getting to the blossoming of things so that we can end soon and start the question period with a 10 minute break. Um, I'll just, uh, one quote from a passage on the way to the end is that uh, in each thing, intuitive looking, which stands for all these uh, ways of looking of Arbor, the Chinese painters, Goethe, I'll just use one expression for it that allows every latent capacity for action to appear as at work and every dormant potentiality of existence to appear as in bloom or alternative an alternative translation allows it to appear as a new life emerging like a chick from the cracked shell of an egg. And then the final uh, quotation is a claim first. Uh, it might be possible for St. John's students in freshman lab to be in a position to connect what is being said in the following quotation to some of their own experiences in the lab, in the first couple of weeks of the lab. They, they, the students, will have something toward which they can look off in trying to make sense of what is said in the quotation. So I quote, now what does the word physis say? It says, that which is spontaneously blossoming on its own. For example, the blossoming of a rose. 
Holding, that is opening itself up, the entering into appearance in such unfolding, and holding itself and persisting in appearance. In short, the ruling, working, holding sway that is blossoming, abiding. Physis as blossoming can be experienced everywhere. For example, in the growth of plants, in the emergence of animal and human from the womb. But physis, the holding sway that is blossoming, is not synonymous with these processes. Physis is being itself by virtue of which beings first become and remain observable." <clears throat> End quote. So as we, students of the early part of Freshman Lab, listen to this passage, written by the philosopher Martin Heidegger, we are able to recognize that its kinship with our experiences so far in the lab <clears throat> that it has a kinship, sorry. We might underline on our own that blossoming brings to our minds the sudden putting forth of shoots and the switchover impulse that is the originator ruler of moving and of standing still. We also rec recognize in it the plant's stain itself in a way while becoming other. Looking ahead to the next section of the lab on animals, we might wonder whether some new feature other than being as blossoming might come into prominence. We might look back at the difference we noticed yesterday in our quick peek at the amoebae the difference that, as opposed to the growth of plants, theirs comes to an end that is their end, one at which they keep maintaining themselves. So that's the end. I'd like to just remind you there is a sprouting period starting in 10 minutes, and I'd like to let you know I would like to begin by sharing a bud that sprouted this morning before and during my jog. It is a response to a question that was posed by at least four people in different ways last night, beginning, I believe, with Ms. DeWitt. So I will just start with that sprout and then we'll go wherever we go. <clears throat> 